Hello, welcome to my weekend check-in podcast. It's Sunday and it's the 2nd of July and so we're, yeah, we're in the second half of the year. How's your week been? Hope it's been good. Hope you're having a nice weekend. It's very sunny here in Liverpool. When I say sunny, it's very blue sky anyway, let's put it that way, which is, uh, it looks kind of my kind of day. I can see that the uh, the trees are kind of waving a little bit in the breeze and so uh, yeah, once I've once I've done this podcast, I think I'll get myself a shower and get out there, go for a little stroll or or do something like that. But hope you've had a good week. I hope everything's been good to good for you. I've I've had some uh, lovely feedback on the first podcast. I've decided actually to split the podcast off because I was doing it over at alanparry.com. and when I came to think about doing this one, I thought it doesn't really fit over there, so. I'll bring you here to Parry Songs and then the other podcast can still keep its own sort of identity when I do the interviews and more thoughtful pieces. But this is this is just my check-in with you you folks. So, um, yeah, I thought I'd bring this across to parrysongs.co.uk. So this is now a spin-off. It's a spin-off podcast. Um, so, yeah, all the best shows had spin-offs, didn't they? Um, I'm trying to think of some now. Um, which shows had spin-offs? I know Family Guy had a spin-off, didn't it? Although I didn't particularly watch that. Soap, when I was growing up, they had a spin-off with Benson. Um, yeah, there's been loads of spin-offs. Was um, was Dynasty or, or something, did they have a spin-off? Didn't watch that. S- send in your spin-offs. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but certainly this has got a spin-off now. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting week. I was in Leeds on blur. What night was I in Leeds? I was it was in Leeds on Friday, and I took my new PA. You remember I mentioned that last time. It's a handheld thing. You just pick it up. It's no bigger than a '80s style ghetto blaster. It weighs eleven pounds, and it's the first time I've really done it in a sort of uh, you know an environment where I'm doing a gig. It sounded loud in the house. But I didn't know if it'd be loud. And I was in this pub and it was quite noisy in the room next door coming through the bar. And uh, yeah, it knocked out some welly and uh, very, very convenient to carry as well. So expect me to be bringing that to some more indoor gigs in future because I think it really did help. And thanks to everyone at Leeds United. It was good to see the Gavani family turn up. Hello to all of you. Um, So it was nice to see some familiar faces in the audience, as well as making friends with some uh, some new folk as well. So that was a, a lovely gig. i tell you what I did see yesterday, um, and it's a shame really, because I can't recommend that you go and see it, because I went on the very last day. I'm always really dozy about doing things like theatre tickets, and uh, so I often miss things just because I'm dilatory. But um, I managed to get this one. It was the very last day. And it was a matinee, and it was by the Liverpool songwriter and playwright, playwright Lizzie Nunnery, and it was called The Sum. And I do hope that once this, uh, now this run is over, that it goes on tour, because I tell you what, it was like a punch in the stomach. It was absolutely terrific. Um, an austerity-based play with music. Uh, I've known Lizzie for a long time, you know, on the Liverpool acoustic music scene. Um, and God, it was an incredible piece of work. It really was. For the second half... I kid you not, it was very, very difficult not to be crying the whole way through. Um, I was on the front row really fighting back the tears and and only just winning. So I I hope the sum goes on tour. I hope Lizzie's feeling proud. I saw saw her at uh, the interval and uh, I told her how good it was already in the first half and the second half with all the tears, etc. hadn't even happened. 
But she seems a modest soul to me, Lizzie. So she, you, a little bit like myself, really, when somebody gives me a compliment, it's taken me a lot of training to kind of accept the compliment. So I hope deep down she's really proud of this incredible thing that she's created. And if it does go on tour, and I do hope it does, make sure you get to see it. It's called The Sum. It was one of those things, really, that kind of reconnected me in some way to my radicalism. And I, I, I can't really convey what I mean, because obviously, if you hear my music and stuff, you know that I'm very connected to my radicalism. But um, I know what I mean, really. I just can't I just can't uh, express it very well. But that's what it did. It kind of clunked me back into, into place in some way. But it also made me think about housing, you know... Um, my friend Chris, who's a sociology lecturer, he specialises in housing, and I'm increasingly beginning to see why he he did that. Because housing, it seems to me, is like it's like the big thing, isn't it? I mean, so many people these days don't even have housing. You know, you see them littered across the streets of any big city, fellow human beings without a home, and then the rest of us are desperately fearful that we we will end up in the same place and the biggest chunk of any of our money is either the rent or the mortgage and i wonder how liberating it would be if uh, if all housing was free basically and so i've been thinking about that sort of issue as well and thinking about i mean i, I i'm not doing bad really because my housing is relatively cheap but it's still the biggest expense on my on my bill I mean, the main characters going through are incomings and outgoings and doing sums and trying trying to make the whole thing add up. And I thought, God, that's my life. You know, that's how I kind of live myself um, with this sum. And the biggest chunk of the sum um, is is housing costs for everybody. Isn't it? Well, for everybody who's still paying them anyway, who hasn't paid off their mortgage. And it would just be so liberating, wouldn't it, if we could find some sort of way whereby we we didn't have to pay for our shelter such a basic need as that i say where we can find a way you know it's not um it's not out of um the realms of human possibility isn't it i mean my friend chris came up with this idea where instead of all of us privately doing mortgages and then paying the mortgage up selling the house on and some other poor sod getting the mortgage why not some sort of central authority like the state or a housing co-op does the mortgage once and then within 25 years, all housing would basically be paid for and free, wouldn't it? You know, it wouldn't need to... This private market in housing kind of enslaves us all, really. So it got me thinking about all this sort of stuff. The thing is, you see, with politics... I didn't know I'd be talking about politics today, but, you know, this is the effect that the sum has had on me, really. And, and in talking about it to you, I'm thinking about it out loud. But the thing with politics, I and, and I've... It's funny, you know, because everyone's been very enthused by the whole Jeremy Corbyn thing. And I have myself, but um, I've got certain doubts around the whole the whole project. And nothing to do with Jeremy, but I think it's really valuable. A couple of things that I think are really valuable. First, he's put um, a completely different narrative on the table, a different set of choices on the table. Whereas beforehand, the Labour Party were just basically... You know, standing in the in the footsteps of the Tories by accepting austerity, um, what what Corbyn's Labour Party has done is put a different agenda on the table and said, actually, this isn't necessary and and this is actually damaging us and we can do something different. And I think that's really valuable. And by doing so well in the election as well, I think it, I think it has shifted the debate somewhat. And I hear Tory politicians now, um, 
you know, quite frightening, frightenedly talking about um, anti-austerity as an option themselves. So these kind of things, I know, do shift the centre of gravity of political debate. And I think I think what Corbyn's Labour has done has, has been fantastic about that. But I also have this worry whereby we, we just think that, you know, by electing a Labour government, then everything's going to be fine. And what if we don't get that Labour government? Or what if we get a Labour government and... And Corbyn's folk are stabbed in the back by right-wing parliamentarians on both sides. You know, I, I have this kind of, um, I have this kind of hankering for something more autonomous, and I don't know what it is yet. Um, but yeah, so it's not, it's not so much disillusion. I think, I think one of the aspects that gets on my nerves is the local Labour parties still are not allowed to choose who their parliamentary candidates are. And I wonder what the point of being in a political party is. A parlo- especially a political party that tries to get power through parliamentary means if the members of that party can't actually um, choose who its representatives in parliament are going to be. It seems such a powerless and neutered thing. Um, and so that's the thing that kind of bugs me. But I, I do have this wider sense where, you know, what happens if it's raining? You know, what happens if we don't get the sunshine? What can we do anyway to make sure that collectively we are okay and we're looking after each other? And as I say, I haven't got a bloody clue what that is at the moment. Um, I've read aspects of uh, John Holloway's book, um, Crap Capitalism, and it's quite inspiring in many ways because what he talks about are various ways in which human beings... um, act outside of the, the, the normal human relations, of social relations, rather, of of, uh, of capitalism. And yet I always find myself frustrated that there are no kind of answers as to how we can do this in a bigger sense. You know, he gives examples like going to an allotment and all that sort of stuff. And I can understand what he means. Um, but at the same time, I want something which is, which is beyond kind of what I might term middle-class life coaching, you know, the sort of thing that kind of, you know, I I was looking at the housing issue and I'd quite like to live in co-housing. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Um, Co-housing is this thing where people live together but separately in a community and what they'll do is they'll, they'll fund this thing where architecturally a set of houses are built but they're built so that the architectural design is that it's designed for community. So everyone has their own space, everyone has their own dwelling, everyone has their own kitchen and bathroom and all that sort of stuff like any house would. But at the same time, within that kind of complex, if you like, there is like a communal hall where people can, if they want to, go and have social eating. And So any time that a person is lonely, they can go together and... Um, you know, commune with each other and pop in. I suppose like the local pub used to be, you know, if someone was kind of feeling a bit fidgety, they could go down the local and and find that uh, there's someone in there that they could have a natter with, that kind of thing, really. Um, except, you know, on a broader sense, on a broader basis than just alcohol. So I really like those ideas. And I also like the, the idea that affordability could maybe bought, um, could be designed into that as well. But... It still feels like a middle-class pipe dream. You know, I looked at how to be part of that and and it was just as expensive as anything else. So, um, yeah, so that's where my thinking is. I feel a bit reconnected to my radicalism and, and certainly to the pain that people are suffering with under austerity. And, I mean, I, I talk about that on an external level, but 
if anyone sees my pay packet, you know that um, as an artist, especially, and as someone who tries to plough their own furrow, etc., it's it's not an easy life financially, although it's very enriching in a spiritual sense. So I'm not at all divorced from this, but I, I just keep asking the question, and I wonder if anyone, in fact, do you have any answers to this? Because what happens, say, if what happens if this project fails? What happens if we just get Tory government forever? What happens if we were to break out of this kind of, you know, almost submissive, um, on our knees, begging to the bigger powers and realise the power that we have? What does that power look like? You know, how can we actually kind of go ahead and make each other's lives better, no matter what government is in, no matter what projects fall off the rails or go on the rails? You know, how can we actually be independent of the political weather, if you like? I don't know if anyone's got any ideas, but that's a question that I keep coming back to. And um, yeah, so I found there's, there's some a very affecting piece of theatre. So well done to Lizzie Nunnery. Well done to all the cast. Um, you know, it's funny because I know the guy who plays um, the lead male character, um, Danny, and even knowing the guy, I wasn't thinking, well, there's Liam. I was just so immersed in the whole thing that I, I totally believe, you know, he totally transformed into this other character for me. So that was a, an, an amazing piece of theatre, and I'm really glad I got to see it. Um, I went to, um, yeah, what else am I thinking of this this week? Things are on my mind a lot. I've been reading a lot of um, psychotherapy books again and psychology stuff, and... I've been thinking a lot about what I call life script. I don't know whether this is any interest to you at all, but, um, you know, life script is is kind of... Do you know, like in a film, everyone's behaving according to their script? Well, this idea is that we all have a script ourselves in life that we can kind of... That what we do is we kind of conform to that. And that script was written very, very early on when we were extremely young. And it was a script that we wrote for ourselves. You know, we made a certain set of decisions under pressure from the kind of environment that we were in. Because when you're young, you kind of... Well, you learn the laws of physics, don't you? You learn very quickly not to put a, you know, a, a, a cup of liquid, for instance, on a, on a slanty top because it'll slide off. But you have a kind of psychological law of physics that you learn. You know, so people in families who don't like uh, their children to be noisy will learn to be quiet, for instance. Um, and people learn how to get stroked. And people learn... What happens when they when they get um, you know negative attention, and we kind of decide things based on those pressures, and also based on our own sort of childhood fantasies as well, because we're not great at cause and effect when we're when we're little either, are we? And so I've been I've been really looking at that because one of the things that's most helped me is to engage in in something which is very proactive script change. In other words. And this is something that I, I kind of teach to others as well, either, you know, in workshops or in, in, in my writings or or one-to-one as well. Um, it's it's that kind of proactive script change where you notice what your kind of, um, what, the, what the patterns, what the, what the things are that you decided very young that no doubt helped you and was a wise decision when you were very young, but is no longer helping you now, which is getting in your way. So I, I have a problem really with kind of um, being important, you know, in terms of claiming my own importance. You know, I'll sort of hide away, let other people go first, 
all that kind of stuff and um, not really put myself forward for opportunities and and that might sound strange because I'm a performer and so part of what I do is getting out there but I think what performers do is that we construct a little space in which we're allowed to be important in that moment if you know what I mean so um yeah I've been re-looking really at all of that sort of stuff because the one thing that's helped me is looking at what my script is and then coming up with a healthy version of that script and then just affirming that on a daily basis and I kind of fell out of that habit but I've returned to that and I'm finding it really helpful again and I've been adding bits onto my own healthy script um, and I found those helpful as well and I think I've been thinking about you see the way script um, the way script works is you have injunctions, they're often called in psychotherapy parental injunctions because a lot of the time they come from your parents in some way. But it's a bit of a misnomer because like I say, as kids we don't have a great grasp of cause and effect. So I mean you could hear a car backfire and think someone is trying to kill you for instance. So um, yeah, we don't have a, a good grasp on that. So it's parental injunctions but then not necessarily. And it's all these kind of don't messages the parents will naturally do in terms of trying to look after their child or trying to get their own needs met in in, in the struggle of, of being a parent themselves. And um, there, there are 12 common ones of those. Um, but I'm a big fan of Bob and Mary Goulding who put flesh on this idea by finding a, a dozen of these very, very common injunctions that they saw in their own psychotherapy practice. And it's things like don't be important or, um, you know, don't grow up or don't be a child. Don't grow up is where a parent gets uncomfortable with the child gaining independence. And don't be a child is the opposite, where maybe a child has had to kind of be a caregiver or has had to grow up a little bit too soon um, or is not allowed, is told off for being playful, for instance. So there's a whole category of these um, which are called injunctions. There's 12 of them in total. And um, I've been looking at them because what often, what well, my interpretation of the of the of the literature in 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 psychotherapy where it talks about this is the idea that the child decides to agree with that. So, for instance, um, you know that I would decide that I am not important, and I've 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 had that kind of um, I've gone along with that view for a few years, but in terms of you know, revisiting all of this, what I've actually come to the conclusion is that we don't go along, we, we don't hold that view ourselves, we don't have an injunction of being important and then decide that we're not important. I think we still have the striving. So all of those things that those injunctions tell us that we're not allowed to be, I think we still have the striving to be those things. You know, we want to be playful, we want to be independent, we want to be important. All of these kind of things, I can't remember the other nine off the top of my head, but I think we have a natural striving to be all of those things. I don't think we give up those needs, in other words. I don't think that we ingest the idea that in actual fact we're not important. What I think happens instead is we pay attention to what I would call the or else message that is associated. And I think this this might be a very different way of looking at, at this concept um, so I'd be interested to hear from any others who, who've kind of looked at any of this stuff, what you think about it. Because here's what I think. I think when you get, as a child, a don't do that sort of injunction, 
it always comes with a, a bit of a threat, doesn't it? Don't do that or else. And when I think of a lot of mine and when I've spoken to friends and thought about what theirs are, I think the or else part of the don't do that instruction is is around people not liking you. You know, if I do that, then people are going to judge me negatively. And I think there's a big part of that in, in all of us, really, or certainly most of us, where we fear the judgment of other people. So one of the things I want to do is I want to become more comfortable with the disapproval and judgment of others so that I stop editing myself. Because anyone or anyone else who has that kind of fear will probably understand what I'm talking about, where we keep certain aspects of ourselves under wraps or or we'll we'll only give 80% of ourselves for fear that the other 20% won't be accepted. And I think that's a key or else message in this sort of script that we have. So if we if we carry a don't be important injunction, I don't think it is that we believe that we're not important. Because when someone in the external world actually treats us as if we're important, we often react quite angrily even if we don't show it. I actually think that what we're tied to is not the injunction, not the belief of the injunction itself, but the anxiety that the or else threat will come to pass. So, you know, don't put yourself out there too much because people won't like you if you do that. All that sort of stuff. And it leads us to edit ourselves. So my focus in terms of thinking about this kind of thing is to focus on the fear of the or else message. Now, when I say fear, it's actually not fear, is it? It's kind of anxiety because fear is like a, a clear and present danger. You know, if a lion were to walk into the studio, I would be rightfully afraid. But if I was simply worried that one day I might encounter a lion, well, that's just an anxiety. It's a, it's a future thing. It's still powerful, of course, but the difference is that that's a story in my head. So what I've been thinking about more is how do we actually disattach ourselves from those stories inside of our own heads and so I've been uh, I've been thinking about worry and I've been thinking about worry in the sense that what worry is is it's a way of making ourselves suffer for certain in the present in case some imagined future might happen and I've made a conscious decision that what I'm going to do is I'm going to commit to enjoying life and to stop making myself suffer through worry. Um, And so that's kind of a a big add-on to my healthy script where I'm going to commit to enjoying life, to stop making myself suffer and to accept myself, to enjoy myself and to enjoy my life however I'm living it at this moment Um, and see if I can disattach from worry. So I'm interested really, How, how? what do you think about all that that I've said in terms of stuff that where you might be getting in your own way? Um, what are the kind of or else messages where you notice that you edit yourself? What's the reason why you edit yourself? Is it because, well, what is it, you know? I mean, in my case, I think a lot of the time I'll edit myself and I'll stop myself doing certain things because I think people... Um, might judge me negatively. I mean, it's been a big struggle, really, to to ask for for payments for my own skills because I always thought that, you know, people would think that I was a terrible person if I did that, like I was some sort of breadhead. So these kind of, like, projections that we have onto other people, 
you know, they get in the way. But what other things get in the way? What are the other or else messages? I remember hearing this case, which is a which is a, a really sort of a wow sort of moment. There was this guy, apparently, and he had this injunction where he had to kind of be quiet all the time. So if he sung as a child or, you know, you know, if he made any sort of noise or whatever, he'd get a crack on the head from his father, um, which is a terribly sad thing to hear, isn't it? And um, as, a, as an adult, he went into therapy and he overcame that injunction. And he started experimenting and practicing and playing with the idea of being as big as he actually was. And what happened is he started to suffer from headaches. And that was his own body kind of reacting somatically, you know, to that old smack on the head that he used to get. And so uh, I found that interesting. So what's the or else in in, in your life, I suppose, that is um, that stops you being who you want to be? where you stop yourself from being who you want to be? What are the things where you're obeying a certain thing, like don't belong or don't be close or don't think or don't feel or don't be well or don't be sane? These are all some of the injunctions. Don't be important. Um, don't don't be playful. Don't be a child. Don't grow up. Um, all, these, all these things. Which of those do you obey? Don't be you is another one. Which of those do you obey? And what's the or else message that you have an anxiety about coming true i'd love to hear some of those um yeah i noticed i've been talking on those two topics for about 25 minutes but I'll, i'll tell you this other thing that i'm going to do next week i'm going to start a weight loss challenge with myself you might know this but going back um god i wonder when this was it was probably about seven years ago maybe longer might be longer might even be long yeah it might be about eight nine years ago I was heavy, you know, I was physically quite a heavy person. And I remember going to the doctors just for a routine sort of, you know, the nurse gets you in for an MOT and they always they always um, check your height, which I always find amusing because I'm of an age where that's not particularly changing. And then they weigh you and the nurse said to me, and I'm going back a bit now, but you can see on old photos I used to be heavy. Um, she said that I was 19 stone six. And I thought, wow, you know, that's that's basically just a touch over half a stone of 20 stone. And I, and I made the decision there and then that that wasn't going to happen. And I lost a big load of weight. So I came down all the way to 13, 10. And I've stayed at a similar weight. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm around about a stone heavier than that now. I think I'm, I'm around, probably around about 15 stone. But what I'm looking to do is over the next year, And I keep on telling myself this, but I thought, if you're listening to this, and I know from the stats that people are listening, that I'm going to do a weight loss challenge. So it's the, you know, it's the second day of July. A year goes, you know, in the click of a fingers, doesn't it? And so in a year's time, rather than just telling myself I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to deliberately do it. I'll tell you I'm getting on each week. So here's my plan. By the 2nd of July or that week, wherever we, we are, in 2018, I will weigh 13 stone. And I choose that because that's within my BMI, whatever it is, sort of weight. So I will be 13 stone. And yeah, so here's my plan. Here's my action plan. The first thing I'm going to do is something called intermittent fasting. Now, this is something that I've been doing anyway, but I've been being a little bit naughty. It basically means that you only, you only eat 
for an eight hour stretch of the day. And for the other 16 hours, you don't eat at all. Now, it sounds harsher than it is because, of course, for eight hours, you're sleeping anyway. And for the few hours before bed, you're not really meant to eat. So that takes 11 hours out of the equation. So it basically means don't eat after nine, for instance, and don't have any breakfast. And what that does is, is it, it's got a whole load of health benefits because you're not processing insulin all the time. It's good for your blood pressure. Your cells literally rejuvenate. But it also means that you've only got eight hours in order to try and... It's very hard to overeat unless you really, really try to uh, within an eight-hour period. So I've been testing that doing like one to nine. The problem is I've been breaking the nine o'clock curfew, unfortunately, of late, uh, which is where my problem has been. But uh, that's what I'm going to specify at. I'm going to do eight hours every day. So I'll nine o'clock will be a food cutoff. And one o'clock is when food will start. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'm going to do is to recognize the fact that I actually do like treats um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this this idea whereby I you see when people when people diet they always say I'm going to do a pound a week a pound a week but you know I, you can lose thirty pounds in fifty two weeks it doesn't have to be a pound a week so what I'm going to do I'm going to spend a week. Um, where I'm quite harsh with myself. So I'm going to cut my calories down to the point where I'll lose a pound that week. And then in the week afterwards, I'll only lose half a pound, which basically means I'll be allowed some more calories, which basically means I'll be allowed some more treats. And then in the third of the three weeks, I'll then relax it again, so I only lose a quarter of a pound. So basically what I'll be doing there is I'll be allowed a little bit more flexibility. Because I think um, willpower is quite hard, isn't it? And, and well, you know, when you're trying to keep discipline for a whole year, I don't think that's tenable. So I'll only be keeping proper discipline for a week at a time. Then I'll slacken off. I'll slacken off some more. And then that three-week cycle will start again. And at the end of that, I should have lost 30 pounds. So I'll, I'll step on the scale tomorrow. I haven't done it today. So I'll do it Monday to Monday. And I'll let you know what my starting thing was. And then I'll let you know. I might actually do it Sunday to Sunday because then I can, yeah, that'll keep me more accountable. So I'll start tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow uh, with my weight. And I'll get weighed again on Sunday. It'll only be six days, but I'll, I'll know whether I'm on track. And I'll let you know how it's gone, gone and you can kind of keep me accountable. If you want to join in as well, by the way, um, then keep in touch with me and we'll see how we get on. It'll that'll help me, I think, and probably help you as well. So if you want to do the same thing, remember it's intermittent fasting. We work out how many calories we'll lose us a pound and a half a pound and a quarter of a pound. And we, we do a week on, on the harshest one, another week in on the middle one, and another week on the easiest of the three. And then we come back again. And we should be losing one and three quarter pounds every three weeks, which will be 30 pounds over a year. So that's what I've got in mind for um, for the year ahead. So yeah, I've spoken about um, what well, I've spoken. I've spoken about austerity. I've spoken about psychology. I've spoken about weight loss. I tell you what, I did want to mention by the way. Aldi's really, you know, I, I used to love Aldi. It's gone right down the nick. Um, I, it used to be great. I'd go in there, get all my stuff, super cheap. Now I'm going in there, and most of the stuff that I want it isn't there, you know, and. Um, yeah, I'm having a struggle with Aldi, so um, I don't know why I'm telling you that, really. <laughs> but you, you, yeah, it, 
Anyone who knows me knows that when I moved here where I'm living now and there was an oldie on the doorstep and I tried it out, I thought it was the best thing in the world. You know, if I could afford shares, I would have had shares in the place um, because it was just great. And um, now what I've noticed is that a lot of the stuff that I need just isn't in there anymore. So uh, I'm having to go elsewhere. Another thing I've noticed, by the way, is despite intermittent fasting, and despite being on a budget, I used to be able to get my food for £25 a week. I'm finding it very difficult to shop for any less than £35 a week, which is a big increase, isn't it? Considering, you know, I've knocked a meal out of the equation. So, um, yeah, get your act together, Aldi, because I want to I come back and, 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 and shop a bit cheaper um, than I'm currently doing. Um, Next week, I'll tell you what I'm doing next week. I'm going to see Billy Bragg on Monday at the Liverpool Philharmonic. I'm looking forward to that. He's He's got some new thing out all about Skiffle. I'm sure he'll be bringing his guitar to talk to us about that. I'm a big fan of Skiffle. I love Lonnie Donegan. Uh, I got that love off my dad, who was a huge fan of Lonnie Donegan. Of course, Lonnie Donegan sung loads of Woody Guthrie and Leadbelly covers as well. And you, both, you're all, you know I, I love... Um, Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly. So uh, I'll be going to see Billy Bragg. What what a what a thing that is a, a a combo between Billy Bragg, who was my first proper musical hero, and uh, Skiffle, which I absolutely love as well. So I'll be seeing that on Monday. Um, I'll be doing some music on Wednesday with some pals, um, and then on Friday I'm going to be teaching nonviolent communication again, which I'm looking forward to. This time at the Kindfulness Cafe in Bootle. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I did it the other week, as you know, um, to uh, Nosley Youth Service, to their managers, and I'll be doing it at the Kindfulness Cafe on Friday. The Kindfulness Cafe sounds a cracking thing. I don't know a lot about it yet, um, but it's run by by people as a community interest company, and the idea basically is is that um, their, their objective, it looks to me, is to try and help people feel more well-being, but doing it in a kind of relaxed, informal way. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to going there and just seeing the place, but I'll, I'm looking forward to teaching non-violent communication again as well. Now, I'm going to play you out with the Song of the Week. The Song of the Week is something that I wrote with Gabby Monk, who's a big mate of mine. She's also uh, a part of um, the Good Intentions, which are an award-winning Americana band. And we wrote this song together, and it's it's based on a true story. So I'm going to play you out with Esperanza. I was in the studio um, earlier this week, and just putting the finishing touches to it. You'll hear Gabby on the backing vocals as well. So write in. Um, let us know what you think. I loved getting your feedback last time. I've raised a few topics. It'd be great to hear what you think about them. And any questions that you've got, or anything that's in the news, or anything that's in your life that you'd like to share with me, do get in touch. I'm at al at parrysongs.co.uk and uh, here's Esperanza. The look on his face when I told him I was with child He wept and embraced me and through all the tears he smiled Amidst all this suffering and war for my dear He said this is a beacon to shine through the fear This child is our hope, this baby is our Esperanza With one final kiss he took himself back to the war 
Though a fascist of battle and Franco to be shown the door But the war took his life like a sinister thief The words I clung on to through all of my grief This child is my hope, this baby is my Esperanza I call you Corinna, my own Esperanza But the nuns told me all hope I'd die They gave me a mascot and told me to pray hard But the nuns and the priests, they all lied My hope had not died, she'd been stolen away by the church And sold to a rich fascist family as if she was theirs And the grave I attended through all of my days Is an empty old plot where nobody lays What became of my hope? Where are you, my sweet Esperanza? My Carino was not dead, not 300,000 more But stolen away from sinners like me Whose sin was to be young and poor What of your priests and your bishops and nuns The bandits who trafficked and stole each Esperanza is a stain on your soul I call you Carinha, my own Esperanza But the nuns told me all hope I'd die They gave me a mascot told me to pray hard but the nuns and the priests they all lie